welcome to the Bio Breakdown Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Vanity. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking to a community, community aquatic ecologist. That's a lot of words thrown together. Uh, but I'm just going to do a roundtable of introductions here. So as usual, we're joined by co-host Randall. Hello, everybody. Producer Max. Hi, guys. And our guest this week, Susan Washko. Hello, Susan. Hey there. Um, Susan Community aquatic ecologist, is that correct? I would switch the order a little bit. Aquatic <laughs> community ecologist. See, I knew it was yeah, wrong. Yeah, we're there. Right. I knew we it was got wrong. It. But, uh, yeah. So, Susan, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you know, like, where are you from? And then also, when did you first get interested in science and, and biology? Yeah, so I am from Ohio, Northeast Ohio. I grew up near the Cuyahoga Valley National Park. And I got interested in aquatics because of kind of where I live. So you've probably all heard of the mistake on the lake and like the Cuyahoga River. That whole legacy of rehabilitating the river and the whole watershed in general. So when I was in high school, I took an ecology class and our high school is built on a large plot of land that was an old farm and had an agricultural stream on it. And we got a grant to basically rehabilitate the stream. We did all sorts of restoration. We had to come up with a plan to regrade the floodplain and introduce species. And that whole project just got me really jazzed about making aquatic places the best that they can be for the organisms that live within them and also for humans to enjoy. So for people that don't know, could you give like a quick background on the mistake on the lake? Because I've never heard that before. And that sounds like a perfect children's book. But (laughs) yeah, well, other than being a name for Cleveland, the mistake on the lake happened in 1969, it was the 13th time the Cuyahoga River caught on fire due to the horrible pollution because there were no environmental laws at that time. So the river caught on fire right where it meets Lake Erie, and that sparked the environmental movement. Soon after, Rachel Carson wrote her book, Silent Spring. The EPA was created and the the Clean Water Act was passed. And all sorts of things happened from there that brought us full circle to where we are today. So just this past June, I guess it was a year ago almost, was the 50th anniversary of that infamous burn. And yeah, so I I come from a place of really rich aquatic history. (laughs) When I hear things like that, it really surprises me that we aren't worse off uh, than we are today. Uh, I mean, l- actual rivers catching on fire more than 10 times and, and just because there's no laws. Uh, <laughs> so that's, that's a new one for me. I haven't heard of rivers on fire. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, also the interesting thing wasn't uh, wasn't Nixon the guy who started the EPA, you know, so. for, for all of his flaws, uh, did something real important there. But. You know, that's for everybody out there who feels like they need to redeem themselves. There's always hope. But, uh, <laughs> you know, moving on. So so you did this project in high school, which I have to say is like, that's pretty cool. I was just playing video games and playing sports and lifting weights and stuff. So, I mean, those were my concerns. Uh, but I can't imagine being a high school student and having the opportunity to do that kind of hands-on, like, practical application and learning that way, which I think is, like, the best way to learn. Um 
so you got really inspired then and was that like your whole high school career or was that just like the beginning and the end or that was junior year so in high school I did not think of myself as a scientist and I was like oh you know people that like math like to do science and then I I went to the ecology class and I was like this is my science I really care about animals and how they interact with their environment and how we impact those interactions so I started from there I took another environmental science class my senior year and I knew I wanted to study environmental science in college so I went to Allegheny College in northwestern Pennsylvania and that is where I first started really getting into stream ecology and wetland ecology. Was, so I, I assume that doing this like stream restoration project was really like, you're like, oh, out of all things you can do in ecology, this is kind of my jam right now. Uh, and then, you know, like, I guess is that, did you select that college because of that? Or was it just kind of close by and happened to have that as an opportunity? Because I'm always curious about that. I mean, you know, I, in my path, like, I was way into fish, and I started out doing fish research, and then transitioned into bees, and then from bees to rodents, and then now like trees and elephants. So, like, you know, nobody has, I, I'd say, I'm really interested to talk to people who just do not the same thing, but have kind of this like hardline idea their whole career. Yeah. So I guess the point of the restoration for me was that we as humans had damaged that system. And there were ways that we had figured out what was the best kind of structure to look for for the insects and the fish and the amphibians that needed to live there. And so what I was really interested in at the time were human impacts on environmental systems and kind of mitigating them, preventing future problems and future degradation. But when I got to my environmental science department at Allegheny, there's kind of two ways you can go. There's sort of straight ecology. We're doing research in the field, answering ecological questions. Or there's more the human side of things. And I, I immediately gravitated towards doing the field work and being out in the stream and identifying all the fish and the insects. And so that's where I knew I wanted to, to do that specifically, spend time in the water answering questions. And then that could feed the passion that I had before, where the information that I'm collecting informs the management of those systems and can tell us things about the quality of the habitat just based on what we're finding with biomonitoring. Right. And like that's kind of the dream, I guess, is like avoid people at all costs and just get your hands dirty with the animals. Right. Uh, at least that's how I view it. But we all know, like, you end up managing people more than animals. Um in the end so so what were some of the like research experiences you had in your undergrad if there were any and were they like were they kind of intertwined with your coursework or was it a separate thing because um, I know for a lot of people like me like there weren't very many field courses you could take or the ones that there were, we had a field station, so it was all summer. So you would live in, in the boonies all summer, and those were pretty much the only field courses. And then beyond that, you had to like <clears throat> convince someone to let you work in their lab. 
Um, how was your situation with that? I guess mine was kind of different. So there were a lot of field courses. You could take forest ecology, stream ecology, wetland ecology, any any kind of course that involved a field trip outside. We were in a rural area at Allegheny, so there was a lot of public land that we could go to and use for field trips. And so I started out taking the classes that incorporated those field trips. I took a, a conservation of natural resources class, and we were out every week canoeing, exploring agricultural areas, looking at forests and wetlands and streams and so that firsthand experience right off the bat with a small group of colleagues, I was just, I was able to really get my hands dirty and say, okay, this is what I want to do. And from there, I met other professors that had labs and got to work with them on their research projects. So I could work as my work study job in the lab doing field work. And then those led to summer opportunities. Like you said, I was able to go to a research station in Colorado, the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory. That's where I started working with aquatic insects and ponds. Uh, I had summer research at Allegheny doing fish surveys in streams that had never been electrofished before. So collecting data for the state. There was just, there were a lot of opportunities for research and individual projects and field trips and it was it was the best time wow. that's pretty crazy um so it sounds like in, in high school um you were pretty hands-on because they had they got the grant and then you guys did that that's just pretty awesome um but when you went to college too you were also hands-on is that pretty normal for like a, a, a path through uh through college um I don't think that having a hands-on class like that in high school is that normal. So that stream that we rehabilitated, it was what we called the land lab and different environmental classes at my high school used it for different projects and exploring different ecological topics. And we collected frogs and salamanders and just played around. But I think that's more typical of a college experience where the, the professors are teaching those classes I think it's rare to see that kind of curriculum in high school. And especially at a small private liberal arts college, there's a lot of opportunity because classes are small. They have a good amount of funding so they can get you out into the field. Yeah, I think that's more typical for college. Yeah. It sounds like a pretty good opportunity for, you know, for high school. Like that's kind of, I haven't heard of like anything like that renowned for like a high school to, to do. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, looking back, I feel really lucky. That's awesome. And then when you went to college, you also got your hands, like, in the field. Yeah, which... holding fish and digging in the forest for salamanders and, yeah, everywhere. Did you ever encounter – did anybody ever confront you when you're out doing field work? I always think, like, in the Midwest and the East – I guess you would call Pennsylvania the East, I don't know. Yeah. But uh, – the only thing in Pennsylvania I care about is Scranton, Pennsylvania, and the Philadelphia <laughs> Flyers. But uh, but yeah, no, I feel like the, like those states, you're kind of prone to being confronted by somebody. Did it did it or people interfering with your work? Did that ever happen to you? A little bit. So that project that I did with the electrofishing of different streams that had never been assessed before, it was called Unassessed Waters. 
And we were contracted out by the state to do our section of the state. And a lot of those streams, of course, are on private land because it's the east. So not only did we work on state game lands, but we had to knock on people's front doors and say, hey, we would like to look at this section of your stream and see what's going on in there. We want to know if it would be a good place for brook trout in the future or just to see if they're here and look at your fish populations. And mostly people were like, heck yeah, I want to know what's in there too. I am a fisherman or a fisherwoman and I care about fish. Um, Sometimes they were a little wary. They're like, what agency do you work for? But you know, when they're like, okay, this is the college, it's an experience for students. I'm not in trouble in any way. It's literally, they're just seeing what's here. People were actually really great about it and it formed relationships with the college. So we actually worked with some of those landowners later on different field trips if they wanted to do a riparian restoration project or if they wanted people to come out and survey every year with the stream ecology class to keep track of their fish long term. So while there were some times where we were a little nervous about trying to ask for permission that, you know, we'd get yelled at and chased or something, (laughs) but people were really, really cordial. They care about their land. That's good to hear. I mean, I think most people do. Like, even the people that are confrontational probably do end up caring about it, have some attachment to it. Uh, so that so that's good to hear. But so those were the research questions you were trying to answer, like looking at potential reintroduction sites for fish species and kind of surveying what was there. Yeah, yeah. So we weren't involved in any way in actually reintroducing fish. We were just supposed to go out look at the streams. We did water chemistry to see if the water quality was good. We did the community of fish. We had to identify them from a 50 meter electrofishing run. And yeah, we would say, okay, this is the fish structure. It looks like we could introduce brook trout here or, oh, we found brown trout. This might not be a good spot because they would outcompete the the brook trout. Or in some cases we found little remnant populations of brook trout that were disconnected from the main stem. And yeah, it was really cool to think about the connectivity and where the fish were and what they were doing and how we could augment those threatened populations. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So, I mean, I, I thought that pretty much all of the trout, you know, there weren't any left in like the Eastern half of the country. So (laughs) it's interesting to hear that there are some little pockets of of remnant populations. Um, You mentioned before uh, going to the field station in Colorado. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about that and like the kind of research questions you were looking at there? Oh, man, I could talk about that forever. (laughs) When I went to the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory, that's where I really felt like I grew into the scientist that I've been becoming ever since. So we were out there to look at at ponds. A lot of them are kettle ponds, so they were left over by chunks of ice when glaciers receded and left holes in the ground that fill with water from snow every year. So these ponds go from low elevation to high elevation, and they have different species of caddisflies in them based on what elevation they're at and how long the ponds last. So some of them last the whole year, some of them dry at the end of the summer, some of them dry some years and not others. So there's a a water permanence gradient that we were looking at, an elevation gradient, and the different species of caddisflies. So the questions we were trying to answer were, 
with climate change, as species are moving up in elevation, how does that change the way that nutrient dynamics work within those ponds? So each caddisfly species uses sedge detritus for food. And so they, they're eating this dead sedge and the speed at which they break it down is different with every species. And the amount of nutrients that come out in the pee of the caddisflies is different. <laughs> and so that rate of breakdown and then the amount of nutrients coming out to fuel algae growth for all the other species and whatnot, that is the main driver of how these systems function. So if different species are replacing each other at different elevations, that could change the way the pond nutrients function, therefore the whole community that lives within it. So that's what we were, we were working on. We were doing little experiments in greenhouses full of boxes of water to see how quickly each species could deplete the sedge we put in. We put them in bags of filtered water and collected their the water to see how much pee they had added and how much <laughs> nutrient content it had. Uh, and the, the work is still ongoing. We're still figuring out those questions. And we've run models. And it looks like if the communities of caddisflies continue to change, it could really affect the way the nutrients are cycled and we've we've amped it up now there's salamanders that we're we're looking at and all the different species and their excretion and so if this whole community shifts what do these communities look like and you know they're only they're only open water for the summer basically because the winter in the rocky mountains is pretty harsh so that season's getting longer everything is changing we want to be there to track it i mean that's that's pretty interesting. Uh, I didn't even know insects did pee until probably about five years ago when that picture of that bumblebee peeing on somebody came out. And I was like, that's adorable. Also, brand new information. Uh, but yeah, no, that is wild. Like, like an entire branch of research and like not only just the research, but the fact that it influences whole like community compositions based on P. I mean Yeah. Ecosystem level functioning. That's pretty wild. Would well, you that's would, kind of what the the lab is known for is tracking species as they move upslope. So I think mm -hmm. we we found nine species that had moved up elevation in the course of like ten years or something, which is a really quick movement for what people have seen so far. And the lab is known for really long-term data sets. So the, the data we're working with with these ponds is about 30 years of insects. Mm -hmm. Oh, Pretty wow. Uh, that's a long time. Randall, did you have a question? I was going to say, uh, would you say the, the caddisflies have the biggest influence on the ecosystem? Or is it more like what they eat and then their nutrients? Yeah, the caddisflies are definitely the driver of the ecosystem because they're the dominant organism that lives within those ponds. So changing the composition of that major group can really change what's happening in the system. Wow. What exactly is a caddisfly? Yeah, a caddisfly is kind of like an aquatic caterpillar. So the species we were working with, they're called lepidopter or Lepidopterans is butterfly, sorry. Uh, they're <laughs> tricopterans in, um, in a specific family we were working with where 
they're fairly large, maybe like an inch long at their biggest, and they live underwater and build little houses for themselves out of d- debris they find on the pond floor. So they, they have silk and they spin these little houses and they live and carry them their little house around kind of like a snail would, um, just oh, wow. eating, eating and eating. And then at the, the end of their pupil stage, they, they build basically a cocoon using their house and they seal it up. And then they emerge kind of like a butterfly does, but as a little fly. And then they, they are terrestrial after that until it's time to lay the eggs back in the water. That's pretty crazy. Sounds like a, like a cross between like a beaver and a butterfly. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting comparison. I could see that. <laughs> if I were you, I would have been running a racket. You know, I've been forcing caddisflies to make all kinds of houses out of all kinds of like objects and substances I could put in there. You know, like that one one person made them or gave them gold leaf, and then mm-hmm. they turned those caddisfly uh, cases into to earrings and sold them. I would have been running that racket. I'm gonna be honest. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> sounds like Minecraft. Wild. So <laughs> a little bit like Minecraft, yeah. So, do you think that the community composition change moving up the mountain is due to climate, due to, um, or is it just kind of a process that started and it would happen regardless of, of climate change? Well, it's definitely getting warmer up there so so we think the main mechanism for species being able to move to higher elevations is the longer window of time that the pond doesn't have ice on it and is productive during warm temperatures that's Mm -hmm. really long at the lower elevations and really short at the higher elevations and with climate change those higher elevation ponds are now active for a longer period of time so those species can move up because they have time to finish their life cycle before the pond ices over after it ices out and i think that's our main our main mechanism there mm-hmm. sounds like the higher they get the more like the, the fountain of youth is at the top of the mountain the higher <laughs> they get the more life they have so, um, and then I've heard you talk about in like personal conversations that you kind of like, you loved the little town around the field station. Yeah. Was that, I mean, cause for me, like for, for if what my research is on the other side of the world and I live in the bush and I love living in the bush, but I'm also head over heels about our little town and our little community we have over there. So to me, like if I didn't have that, I'd probably be in a, you know, I, I don't know if I could do it. Um, how was the situation with the town around that field station? Yeah, so the field station is in the Gunnison National Forest. It's about three miles up a dirt forest service road from a ski town called Crested Butte. So the actual town that the lab is in is called Gothic. And it basically just, it is the research station. It's an old mining town. And in 1928, it was turned into a station. So all the little miner cabins became dorm housing for scientists. They recently built a brand new, beautiful dining hall. So it's basically just open for the summer. 
And everybody just flocks up there to study marmots and hummingbirds and other pollinators and wildflowers. It's just, it's really exciting to be with all those people during that time. We're all excited about our research, doing hard work every day, climbing mountains, collecting data, and then come home to the little station in the evening and we hang out together and decompress and we hike on the weekends and it's it's an amazing community. We all feel compelled to be in such a beautiful place together, trying to do work that will hopefully benefit the Rocky Mountains in the future. And it's it's a dream. I I love <laughs> being there. So do you work there now at all, or is that just because I guess where the next question is? So that was during your undergrad uh, career when you got to when you got first started going there, right? Right. And then how did that transition into what you did for your master's? And then also, I guess, like, are you are you just you're looking for an opportunity to be able to work at that place again in the future? Or how's that going? I would love to work there in the future. I'm still affiliated with the station because my lab works there. So I try to make a trip up every summer and help out a little bit just to stay connected and remain close to my science family. And we, we all love working together. So it's, it's fun to get together and do our traditional summer activities. Um, but that summer experience during my undergrad was I think what got me my master's position. Having that research experience, I think, was what landed me my master's position in Utah. I went to Utah State in northern Utah. It's about an hour and a half north of Salt Lake City in a little town called Logan. And I also loved living there. It was like the outdoor mecca of grad school. Uh, It was really, really fun. So up there, I worked on how beavers change the communities within streams. It's not totally related to the work I was doing in ponds, because they're they're different aquatic systems, but I'm still working with the community of insects and how something is changing it. So in Colorado, it was climate, uh, but here, in, or up there in Utah, it was beavers. So, you know, beavers are running around, felling trees, building dams, and when you build a dam, it basically creates a pond in the stream And that's a totally different habitat than what was there before. And since beavers were almost extirpated in the 1600s to late 1800s for the fur trade, the activity of beavers plummeted. And then they started recovering. And now we're seeing these systems change to what they probably were for hundreds of years before European colonization of North America. So it's just really cool to think about how beavers building new habitats within streams creates pockets for a different aspect of the aquatic insect community in streams. So were these remnant populations or were they were they descendants of paratrooper beavers? <laughs> the paratrooper beavers were just a little further north in Idaho. Uh, but I, I'm not totally sure. I think they naturally recolonized up there, uh, especially because Utah is a big trapping state, and people were still uh, enthusiastic about trapping them out. Yeah. So, yeah. So we were we were up there working with those those beaver populations, trying to figure out if the density of beavers affected streams in specific ways, and how many dams could streams hold. And then I specifically just worked on how they affected the insects. 
So for people that don't know, you should Google like parachute beavers and well have safe search on, but uh, the the government dropped beavers from airplanes in wooden crates with parachutes, and the crates were designed to like break open when they hit the ground. Uh, to reinvigorate these populations that had been trapped out, I think that was in like the 50s or 60s they mm-hmm. did that. Uh, yeah, because, I mean, through fur trapping, the fur trapping demand, uh, the mountain men, you know, um, beavers were trapped for their pelts, and that's actually like a foundation for this country. Look that up, too. It's great. Well, I mean, it's kind of sad, but it's cool. Okay. Uh, but yeah, so their solution was literally like capture beavers, put them in crates, throw them out of airplanes, and then uh, they just did what beavers do, and then they're successful. Um, but that's wild. So, I mean, I would have never, I mean, it makes sense, obviously, like moving water, sitting, standing water, different temperatures and oxygen contents, like that's got to influence what insects and and their larvae can live there but i would have never thought that it would have been like super significant i would have just thought it would have been more of a locality thing um yeah so so did i mean did you get to see any beavers i've only seen a few beavers yeah yeah i saw beavers all the time because you know they were up there working on their their dams and their lodges and i was up there counting my bugs (laughs) (laughs) yeah i saw one when i was electrofishing because i also worked on the trout because i figured if the insect community is changing the trout food is also changing so how does that affect trout populations and trout Mm -hmm. diets um so i was electrofishing up there and i was so worried that i was going to shock a beaver it would have broken my heart, but everything was fine. Now, are, are beavers, are they like a friendly animal? Will they, are they scared of humans? Yeah. Yeah, so beavers, they're pretty scared of other things. That's why they build dams is to increase the surface area of the water so they have more room to swim in because that's how they escape predation is they're really fast swimmers. I think wolves and bears and mountain lions are their main predators, so that's how they get away is dive in. And they'll do the same thing with humans. They'll slip away under the water. If you surprise them, they'll slap their tails down on the water, and then you'll be surprised. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, they're they're pretty mellow. They have never tried to attack us or anything. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's, like, a you – know, not even a B level, but, like, a C level. Or, I think it's called Zombievers. I've I've never seen it. I've just seen the cover, but I'm pretty sure it's about like man-eating beavers. So, I, you know, if somebody wants to contact us and let us know, that'd be great. Uh, I'm not recommending <laughs> zombie beavers, though. I feel I feel like I can outright say it's ecologically inaccurate. Um, I've never heard a beaver tail smack before, tail slap. I'm very jealous. Um, yeah, we. I know a certain person who is also an aquatic ecologist and he hates beavers because they changed, you know, streams from a, a lotic state, right? That's moving, correct? You, you yep. use those words to a lentic mm-hmm. state, which is like the standing water, right? Yep. Uh, and he hates that because it changes the fish community also outright. Um, would you say beavers deserve that kind of hate? Cause I feel like, they just kind of function on a time scale that's inconvenient for humans, right? So, like, if a beaver sets up a dam or family beavers, 
and then they take out all the trees in that area, then they're going to move on, and then that dam's going to degrade eventually. So Yeah, and the dam's breaking down and changing. It, it can take a long time. Some dams that have been found in rivers are 100 years old, but usually the oh, timescale wow. is much shorter because big floods will just push them out. I would say that beavers don't deserve any hate for changing the habitat, therefore changing the fish community, because it's it's natural. Those fish evolved with those beavers, and the fish actually do use beaver habitat. So when a beaver builds a dam, you know, it, it makes that big pool. It's deep. There's really cold spots for fish that need colder temperatures. It's a low flow area, so they can rest. They don't have to fight to stay in one place like they would if the water's moving fast. So a lot of studies have shown that beaver dams are really great for salmon runs because the juvenile salmon need those cold temperatures in the deep beaver ponds. They need the, the flow area for refuge. Uh, sometimes the stream coming into the, the beaver pond is like a water slide for insects. So they're moving through the water as it flows, and then they hit this more stagnant pool of water, and they're just the insects are just suspended there, and the fish can just pick them off. So a lot of the time when you're fishing, and I, this is my personal experience, you catch really big fish in beaver ponds compared to the regular small stream. So I think it's context-dependent. Here in Arizona, we do have beavers, and there are a lot of problems with the fish communities and beavers here because of non-native species, the beaver dam habitat in Arizona is really great for sunfish and bass and things that totally decimate our native desert fish. So I can see in Arizona people not really appreciating how beavers affect fish, but it's also our fault because we put the non-native fish in there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'd say it's way more our fault. And this is not an Arizona person, so they just misinformed. Um, Another thing you talked about, which, so you said you were electrofishing. Were you electrofishing off boats? Because uh, I've done a little, like, backpack shocking before, and that's fun. Uh, but you also, I, you know, sometimes things go a little bit wiry and you, you don't necessarily accomplish what you want to. And, you know, or you, like, shock a soft shell, soft shell turtle and you feel terrible for a couple of days. Uh, so you weren't using boats then you were just, were you like backpack shocking or what was going on? Yeah, we were always backpack shocking. It's not big enough or deep enough to have a boat. It would have been handy in some of the giant beaver ponds, but we just, there was no way we could get a boat there. There's no way to drive the boat in. I had to hike sometimes two miles with the backpack shocker and all the batteries and all the gear just to get to where I needed to be anyway. So there weren't any boats, but backpack shocking didn't go too bad. Uh, We usually had a a good number of volunteers. We're pretty thorough. And I guess the the worst thing was I was actually helping another project that involved electrofishing. And it was in the spring when the snowmelt was happening. And a snowmelt flood blew out a beaver dam while we were electrofishing and all this debris and mud was coming downstream at us and we couldn't catch any fish and we had block nets up and they were oh, getting no. weighed <laughs> down with sticks and debris and we yeah. had to get out. But Ooh. other than that, <laughs> I, other than that, it was a it, good time. Just to clarify, 
electro fishing like i think i know what that is like you have like a fishing rod with electricity attached like coming into the, the rod like what is that yeah not quite so people always equate electro fishing to ghostbusters where there's like a, <laughs> a big backpack and it's got a battery in it and then it's connected to a rod with a, a metal ring on the end, and that's okay. the anode. So you have that down in the water. And then on the back of the backpack, there's what we call the rat tail, which is a wire that comes out behind you, and that's the cathode. So you press the okay. button on the rod that sends the electricity from the battery into the water, mm-hmm. and it creates a circuit between the anode and the cathode. So that's how the electricity gets into the water, yeah. and it stuns the fish, and they're drawn to that electricity, so they come up right to that ring that the electricity is emitting from, and then you can just scoop them up in your net. And Sounds very it's, efficient. It is very efficient, yeah. And, and it, <laughs> well, it doesn't hurt. Yeah, that's what I was going to get to, is that it, it just incapacitates them, and then if, if the settings are correct, which most scientists you know, can get them correct, the fish are just incapacitated, and they'll kind of snap out of it you know, as they yeah. float downstream and, and be okay. Yeah, it's like a um, quick stun gun type thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is crazy. I mean, and it's very useful. It's very efficient, as you guys said. Why hasn't that made its way to, like, commercial fishing? Is it, like, too much <laughs> too much money or it's backpacks probably, too heavy? I don't know. It's too big of a liability because if, you, if your bare hand touches the water when the electricity is going, you're going to get shocked. You have to have really good waders so there's no leaks. And mm-hmm. it would it would be way too easy for fishermen. It's something that is definitely a research purpose because you're removing like all the fish from the stream. So <laughs> if you're catching everything. <laughs> yeah, if you're in for for fishing, it's because you want you want the the patience of the game. Yeah, mm-hmm. sounds like a good way for me to catch my first fish. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I mean commercial operations in like really large lakes and stuff. It wouldn't it wouldn't work because the electricity can't go that far. So they that's why they use those really big nets. Uh, as somebody who's had you know poor waders, yeah, I can I can say that you know you really do need those good waders when you're electrofishing. <laughs> uh, otherwise, it becomes problematic. Um, so that was your your master's work, and then were you guys like satisfied with that result? Uh, what you guys accomplished? I mean, with a master's project, part of it is the learning process. So I was really happy with my macroinvertebrate chapter, but a lot of my fish work just ended up not working because I I wanted I tagged all these fish and I wanted to see how much time they were spending in the beaver ponds, but the equipment I have just it wasn't good enough to get the kind of data that I needed. I didn't have a ton of fish that I could get the the diets from and compare the diets to what I was finding in the regular stream versus the beaver pond to figure out where they were eating. So I, it was it was difficult. I There's some diet data that I'm happy with, but the fish movement data is not sufficient at all. And so, I don't know, I had one chapter that I just kind of like forget about. And that's just kind of, I mean, it's a learning process. Not everything you do is successful. And I'm sure that what I did will help some other poor soul doing a master's figure out what to do to actually answer the questions a little bit better. Yeah, I feel like within academia, when you meet those people who are kind of like 
shrewd elitists about like, well, I've never screwed up that bad or whatever. It's like, <laughs> just, just wait. You know, it might not happen today or tomorrow, or this year, maybe in five years, but 10 years down the road, you're going to be embarrassed. And you don't know how to handle it because you didn't have that experience in your master's program. Uh, So I feel like you're right that it's absolutely an important part of the learning process. Like not saying that you should be. Yeah. Not saying that you should be embarrassed, but just like the ability to deal with adversity and understand that things are not going to work out the way that you want them to all the time is important. So I almost feel sorry for the people who their stuff went perfectly. I'll say that. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. That's just a <laughs> that's a part of science and a part of research. Yeah. Uh, do you guys have any questions on that, or should we move on past that? Uh, um, let's let's move on. Yeah. Okay. So you went from there to University of Arizona, where we are now, uh, for your PhD program. Um, like an, another thing that we've kind of I guess glossed over here, but how was navigating the progression from these different segments of your life, like the different steps. Um, Did your advisors know each other? Did like, were you just reaching out for a project that you thought was interesting? How did that work? Yeah, so my advisor from my master's doesn't know my PhD advisor personally. I think they've both heard of each other in the field, kind of a tight-knit community. Uh, They didn't know each other. But when I was looking for a PhD project, I kind of knew what I wanted to do. So living in Utah, I took a lot of trips to southern Utah and explored all of the the red rock canyons of the Colorado Plateau where they had these really cool little pools in the flat canyons that filled with water. And I was like, I want to study those. And so one of the people I ended up reaching out to was my current advisor, Michael Bogan. And I talked to him and I was like, I'm looking for a PhD position. This is like the project that I want to do involving these rock pools full of water. And he was like, oh, I just got a grant to do that. And I was like, sweet. So it worked out kind of serendipitously. And I'm here now doing this project that I really wanted to do. And I'm stoked about it. Well, so, I mean, that's that sounds pretty smooth. So it wasn't like a, you weren't sitting there, like, agonizing over finding the right project because this one just kind of fell into your lap. Well, well so well, I did a little bit because I, yeah. I applied to, to three different schools, narrowed it down to two of them, and one of them was University of Arizona, and the other one was back east, and I wasn't going to be able to do the project that I had dreamt up for myself. So it was really kind of a question of, okay, which advisor would I rather work with and what project would I rather do? And I don't know, there was a little agony there. And then I didn't finish my master's before I left Utah. So then I had to finish it during the first semester of my PhD. So I like went back and defended and had to write everything up by the end of the semester and I did it partially because my my advisor is super great and he was like, yeah, I just want you to get that done. And I was like, me too. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, otherwise it was pretty smooth. I knew what I was looking for in terms of a project. I really wanted to work in systems that dry. So that's that's what I got. That's what I'm doing, my dream project. It's not on the Colorado Plateau, but it's (laughs) it's still good. I always try to ask that question because I feel like 
navigating the different stages of a research career is just such an abstract concept for most people where they're like, oh, if you liked what you did for your master's, why don't you just stay there for your PhD? Or, you know, like, or, or, the, or they had just have no idea. And I don't mean that like, you know, uh, talking down. I mean, we are academics, so it's kind of our own fault of being such a clandestine group in general and like, you know, having these closeted practices and all that, right? But, but I'm just saying, it's such a foreign concept of like, finding a project but even if you're the best person for the project you might not get it uh you got to have the right references you've got to build a reputation all those intangibles lead up to you having a better chance at doing what you want to do and then you still have to apply for it and the circumstances still have to be correct right because i when i was looking for phd programs i'd reach out to people and they're like man you're obviously qualified for the stuff that i do but i don't have room in my lab good luck and that's like the that's the end that's the end of conversation with that person you can send an email like hey do you have any recommendations who else to contact you won't hear anything uh so you just need you know like either the right circumstances in combination with with like put it, setting yourself up well I'll say yeah I know what you mean people did ask why I didn't just stay in Utah and keep working and at the other school that I was thinking about going to they were really interested in me continuing working with beavers but back in the east in the Adirondacks and while I thought that would be a cool opportunity I had decided to do a master's before a PhD because I wanted a diversity of research experiences. I knew that I could get really great experience, build skills, and it would be a two-year commitment. I would be able to move on from that and do a project that I knew I was gonna love and really hone my craft towards my future career. So I, I mean, I could have stayed, but I, I really wanted that diversity of experiences. Mm -hmm. Uh, so masters before PhD is that a uh, is that common? I think so. A lot of programs for a PhD, some of them require that you have a master's. Not all of them do, uh, but usually I think people do one and then the other. I think it's rare for people to go straight into a PhD unless they've had a lot of experience with a a job in the field. Makes sense. Uh I've I've heard of a few people starting a master's and transitioning that project into a PhD before it was finished. Right. And that sounds pretty great. But I mean, and I'm not like a special person, but as far as I'm concerned, I definitely recommend somebody doing a master's before a PhD because You know what you're getting into. Yeah. You know what you're getting into and a master's is intense enough to where you're gonna have a lot of adversity in a master's program no matter what you're doing hopefully uh but also like unfortunately it's kind of <laughs> hopefully there's a balance between those two um and you can accomplish what you set out to do but yeah like if you jump straight into a phd they're gonna expect six years put out research publish while you're doing it and if you're like i don't know 22 years old coming straight out of undergrad, never having written anything at all, and coming off of writing, like, wrote papers about Romeo and Juliet as well as lab reports, you know? Like, you're not going to be equipped well to publish four, four publications over the next five to six years, I don't think. 
Yeah, it makes the learning curve a lot steeper. I think it's nice to have a master's to really get your feet wet. And then if you don't end up liking where you were living or if you don't end up liking the project, it's only two years and you can move on after that. I think it's a great first step. I think it it helped me figure out more concretely what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And if you want to get out of research, because research is, you know, not for everybody, having a master's really equips you for that, like, next tier of jobs, uh, it, whether it's like a de- you know, state department job, federal job, or working at some kind of educational facility, it really does, I think, equip you better um, than, you know, starting a PhD and quitting, <laughs> especially, or just having a bachelor's. Uh, but yeah, so could you talk a little bit about the work that you're doing now? Um, you said you were looking at, I mean, I know what you do, but just using your own words that you just said, you're, you were really interested in systems that dry out throughout the year. Um, and you found these pools, right, in the, what do you call them, Red Rock Canyons? Yeah, Slot uh, Canyons. Yeah, so could you talk about what you're working on now? Yeah, so now I'm I'm looking at those rock pools. So basically, out here in the desert, there are big mountains that have these rock canyons. And as flash floods pulse through those canyons during the monsoon season, the rocks get eroded into kind of a, like the shape of a bowl into the bottom of the canyon. And th- after the water has flushed through or when it rains, those those bowls within the rock fill up with water and they're called rock pools or locally they're called tenajas, which is an old Spanish word for bowl. And since it's a desert, the water is not going to last forever. So they're hidden, tucked away in these canyons, these ephemeral water sources, and they're really important for wildlife. They're important to the people whose traditional homelands are in this area And what I'm really interested in is how the fact that they're drying shapes what kind of insect community can live in there. How specialized do those insects have to be to drying? Or are they they leaving? Are they staying and waiting for the water to come back after it dries? Um, And then since climate change is, is making this area hotter, that increased temperature makes the evaporation rate of those pools faster. So if the pools don't last as long in the future, what does that mean for the insects? Which ones can't live there anymore because the pool doesn't last long enough for them to complete their life cycles? And what does that mean for the functioning of those pools? That's the basics of it. So I'm looking at at hydrology, so what are what is the hydroperiod, which is the length of time that the water remains in the pool? What is that and what affects it? And then what insects do we find there and how are they related to that hydroperiod? I mean, th- those are very interesting questions. And could you kind of like talk about like the areas where these Tanahas occur? Uh, you mentioned you first kind of became enchanted with the idea in southern Utah, but we're in Arizona, and also you work in Mexico a little bit. So could you kind of like lay that geography out a little bit? Sure. So right now my study sites are in Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument, which is down on the the U.S.-Mexico border. And then there's a sister park, the Pinacate Biosphere Reserve, which is right across the border in Mexico. And I study... Tanahas in both of those parks. 
So one park has the Ajo Mountains. So that's Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument. There are these nice big granite mountains and they have these canyons that formed over time because of the floods and they've got these pools scoured out into them. They're kind of up in the mountains, so not down on the desert floor like you would picture um, when you think of a desert, but there's mountains out here that have these little pools of water stuck inside for animals to use. And in Mexico, it's the same thing, except for it's a large volcano. And coming out of the volcano are these lava flow formations. And some of those get big canyons cut out of them from flash floods and they have pools scoured out in them. So, so they're hidden across the landscape. They're the size of somewhere between, you know, a popcorn bowl and a backyard swimming pool. And they're hard to find, hard to get to. They're not usually on trails. Um, yeah, we have wildlife cameras up so that we can watch the water level as it drops or fills. And we get to see all the animals that are walking by. It's very cool. So when you say volcano, it's a dormant volcano, though, right? Like there's yes. not. Yes. Okay. Just just to clarify, people listening, she's not like, climbing up there with lava coming out of it. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that's really interesting. And then, have you? What is the craziest animal that you guys have like seen drinking out of these desert pools? Because I think water is such an important resource in the desert Southwest, or I guess like Northwest, if you're talking from the Mexican perspective. Uh, it's such a scarce and important resource, and, and it really does support bigger animals than you would think. Um, so, yeah. We've seen all kinds of things out there. Lots of birds, like golden eagles, different kinds of hawks and owls, songbirds. We've seen bighorn sheep, deer. Uh, we've seen ringtails and squirrels and foxes. And I think at our Mexican sites, there's a badger. <laughs> just hangs out. Uh, we've seen bobcats and mountain lions, and it's really exciting just the number of things that are visiting these pools, especially in the summer when it's the only source of water in the desert. They they visit almost every day, some of them, and yeah, there's a there's a lot of wildlife depending on these tanajas. I can imagine. So even outside the community that like resides in and around the the Tanaha or the, or the, what's the other word? The stone rock pool? Rock pool. Rock pool. I like Tanaha. Rock pool. Um, even the communities, you know, beyond what lives directly in them and just on the outside, like animals do depend on that. And that's really where their importance comes from. Would you say that's, that's true? Like they support a lot of life for how small they are? Definitely. Yeah. And we think that because they're so isolated and important. They probably have some endemic species and we're hoping to see with the insect samples that we're working through, what kind of community is here. If these are hotspots of biodiversity because of their insect taxa and potentially because of the terrestrial organisms that come to them. But I mean, snakes depend on them because they eat the tadpoles of the amphibians like red spotted toads that depend on these pools for reproduction. We've seen Sonoran toads. They're, they're pretty much the only source of water in the area. So, yeah, if you got a drink, that's where you're going. And if you require water to live in, that's where you're going to be. And it's a source of life. It's a, it's a hot spot. 
that's is it, that's sorry. What were you gonna sorry. say, Random? Is there uh, any research that you're uh, building your research off of, or are you coming coming in fresh? A little of both. So there's a lot of of work describing these um, these rock pools and their importance to both the native peoples of the region as well as settlers and miners that came later on. Um, some some research has been done just taking a glance at what kind of insects live there, but there's been no full comprehensive study. So that's that's my job, figuring out what's there and how it works with the hydro period. And there's a lot of little mountain ranges nearby. So now, I mean, we have colleagues that work in the Barry Goldwater Range, just next door to the to the Oregon Pep Cactus National Monument. And yeah, there's a lot of work being done to figure out exactly how important these pools are to both wildlife and aquatic insects in the face of climate change. Um, how common or uncommon are these Tanahas? Like, uh, like, uh, would you expect one to have one, only one to be in like a five uh, mile square radius? They're definitely more common than that, but they're, they're localized to where the mountains are. And it depends on the type of rock that the mountains are made of. So the Ajo Mountains in Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument have a good number of them, and they're usually localized to just where a few canyons are. So there's a good amount of water, but it's all in one place, you know, within probably a mile of each other. Mm. Uh, like a one-mile circle will have all the pools in it until you go miles and miles and miles away, and then there's more. And then the mountains across on the other side of the monument, I only know of two <laughs> on that whole mountain range. There's probably more, but the thing is the reliability of them. While there are lots of little pockets that hold water, it's the ones that hold water for a longer amount of time that we're really concerned with. That makes sense. Gotcha. Definitely. So. Uh, so you mentioned you look specifically at aquatic insects. Do you look at like the crustaceans at all? Because I know when we hiked to the top of uh, the Sheep's Head Dome at the Cochise Stronghold, there were some rock pools up there, and they had the fairy shrimp in there. Um, and I, th I like, you know, those tiny crustaceans. I once had like a, a primal, quote-unquote, primal aquarium that was is supposed to be like triops and fairy shrimp and stuff, and only one fairy shrimp survived and that was and there was like some clam shrimp for a while but the fairy shrimp r.i.p roscoe just want to have a shout out for roscoe the fairy shrimp but oh. do you look at uh do you look at those crustaceans as well or just insects yeah so i i look at all of the invertebrates within the pools so not only am i studying the beetles the fly larvae the giant water bugs and things like that, but I'm also looking at those crustaceans. And I'm especially interested in the crustaceans because they're one of the few types of invertebrates living in these pools that can't fly away when the pool dries. So they have to have another strategy to survive until more water comes, which I think is a familiar story for you since we did that hike. So <laughs> the fairy shrimp that live in these pools, they're their eggs are, are dormant in the dry sediment. And when the rain comes and fills the pool, that clean rain water chemistry triggers the eggs so they hatch. 
And then the fairy shrimp are living their happy little fairy shrimp lives. And as the pool dries down, all of the salts and ions get more concentrated because there's less water. And so that water chemistry tells the fairy shrimp, okay, it's time to lay eggs because the pool's going to dry. So they lay their eggs, the pool dries down, and the eggs just stay dormant in that sediment within the pool. They can, they can do that for 50 years or more mm-hmm. and then just wait for rain, just wait for the water to come back and start over again. Wow. So they're, they're really cool. I think they have an awesome life strategy, uh, you know, just hang out until everything goes to and then you don't have to deal with it anymore. Um, <laughs> that, that must be pleasant. Uh, but yeah, so... I guess, so that's what you're working on now. Um, Are there any, like, findings you would, like, share that's not, like, kind of breaking the bank on what you're not allowed to say? Um, And then from there, like, what do you want to be able to work on in the future? Like, where do you want to be able to go? Well, I just started collecting my data, so I don't really have any findings yet. I've got some preliminary hydroperiod graphs made. I can see, I made a, a map so I can see on the landscape when they're all filling and drying and it's, it's like a little light show with all the, the dots coming up when they're filling and changing as they dry. Um, but I oh, don't awesome. have many answers for the insects yet. I, I can basically just tell you what I've seen on the cameras. You know, they fill, they dry, there's lots of animals and I have found lots of insects. And then in the future, so when I, when I finish this project, and graduate with my PhD. Um, eventually, I would like to be a professor at a small college like Allegheny, so I can give other students the same tight-knit community full of field experiences and inspire people the same way I was inspired and hopefully instill some of the same passions that I have for aquatic systems and other people. So that's my goal. That's awesome. But I forgot, this is poor hosting, I forgot there's something I had been planning to ask you about and then I forgot about it until now. So when you do your field work, you were telling me about these demonic donkeys. Oh, uh, yeah. Could you tell those stories? Because <laughs> I like those stories, they're good stories. Yeah, so our field sites, you know, one is in Mexico, one is in the U.S., in Arizona. They're managed very differently. So one is a national monument and the other is a biosphere reserve. It's kind of like a national park, but it does have these landowners that are able to to ranch, kind of like a national forest. Um, so in certain areas, there, there are ranches, and there's some remnant donkeys out on one side of the, the reserve. And we have a, a few pools that we work in over there. So we, we camp out there, and I didn't know this, but I guess donkeys are nocturnal. So... <laughs> We're camping out there at night, and these donkeys are just clip-clopping around, making these angry noises and investigating what we're doing. And it was really scary. I can't see them. It's dark. There's just donkeys running around. I can't tell how big they are, how close they are. And I'm just picturing them because of the noises they make with these, like, red eyes or something. But, yeah, it's crazy. There's just a herd of feral donkeys guarding these tanahas in one <laughs> section of the Pinacate Biosphere Reserve. Wow. We're interested to see in the pictures if they if they keep the wildlife out of those pools so they can keep them to themselves. 
we'll mm. see. Those pools are full of donkey poo. They're very green. <laughs> yeah, that nutritious. Yeah, that, that sounds pretty terrifying, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew donkeys were nocturnal? That's probably I news did. to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's probably uh, they. They must like feel safer from mountain lions or something to come get water. Yeah. Or at, at well, night. They're pretty big. I think it would be difficult for a mountain lion to take it down. They're a lot taller than a classic prey like a mule deer or a bighorn sheep. And yeah, I guess moving in a group always helps. Yeah. But yeah, they're very nimble going up and down the canyon walls to try to get down to the water. And yeah, but those noises they make, I am, I'm afraid <laughs> for the next time I go there. I think they have it out for me. I mean, I love donkeys. Did you know? Did you know they were donkeys, or did you just wake up in the middle of the night to like a, and you're like, oh my god. Well, we'd heard that they're there, so the park rangers okay. in Mexico were like, yeah, that's where the donkeys are. And we were like, what? And then yeah, we get out there. You don't see them at all during the day. You just mm-hmm. kind of see evidence of them, and you're like, oh, I guess there are donkeys. And then yeah, you try to go to sleep, and then you're like. And like all these noises waking you up and clip clopping and there's like twelve and you can't tell where they are surrounding you. God. It's okay that though. Terrifying. It's gonna be fine. There's multiple of us, so we'll we'll defend ourselves against the donkeys. That can be like electric yeah. gear with you. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case. That can be the sequel to Zombieverse. Could be Zonkeys. Um, Whoa. <laughs> That's like a zebra and a donkey hybrid. But, uh, yeah, so, no, I definitely appreciate your perspective on moving forward and kind of trying to replicate the opportunities that you had as a student. Um, You mentioned uh, before we started recording slash I already knew, but we explained it to, you know, the people who didn't know, uh, that you host a podcast also and could you tell us a little bit about that podcast so it would be impolite for us to have you on and not plug your show Um, (laughs) sure so i'm a member of the society for freshwater science which is an international society dedicated to all freshwater research and the society produces a podcast as part of their publicity and public information committee Um, so i'm one of the hosts of making waves the podcast And we just try to cover topics that are emerging in aquatic sciences, topics that we think people should really know about. And we're kind of transitioning at this point to hopefully making some episodes of the podcast that can be used in classrooms for different educational purposes and reach a broader audience. So it's a a multi-purpose podcast generally dedicated to just how cool we think aquatic research is. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I can't really contribute to uh, your podcast. I'm kind of out of the aquatic ecology game at this point. But uh, yeah, no, thanks for coming on. Um, do you have like, do you have a Twitter? Can't remember. I don't. I'm social media list, but people keep telling me to get one, so maybe someday. I mean, it's a trade off. It's a trade off for real. I'm, yeah. I'm transitioning my account from hockey twitter to science twitter but i still have to interact in hockey twitter otherwise i lose my friends uh so i'm kind of like straddling that line and i feel like people 
like read my bio and they're like, oh, that guy's a scientist. And they follow me and then I tweet out some hockey fights and then people are like, oh, who is this guy? Got to get out of here. <laughs> but yeah, the, the message remains the same. Twitter is a double-edged sword there and uh, people are very sensitive. I found that out. But also, it can be great if you just do science things um, on Twitter. Even then, it can be kind of bad. So can't really recommend. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Can, I'm not going to tell you what to do. But yeah. uh, do you have any... Tread lightly. Yeah, tread lightly, exactly. <laughs> do you have any, like, closing statements you would like to make? Oh, man. That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I just... I just want people to care about their water. <laughs> so get out there and, and vote for your water in whatever way is necessary. People should makes, care about their water. Water yeah. is very important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're talking about trying to go to Mars and the moon and see if there's water up there. Well, we just got to take care of our water down here. Yeah. Right. You already have it down here. Yeah. We have the best water we know of so far. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Can't take that for granted. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, Susan, I appreciate you coming on the show. I know scheduling was a little difficult. Uh, you know, we're it's all gonna... we're all going to make it. We're we all gonna are. Through it's a been an honor to be here. <laughs> Very excited. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm sure your show gets better uh, listenership and reviews than ours does, but I appreciate the sentiment all the same. We're working uh, on it. Um, yeah, so no social media. Check out the Making Waves podcast if you're interested in aquatic ecology. And I hope people enjoyed this episode. If you did, I don't know, like like it or comment or review or something that people are supposed to do. If you didn't, you can reach out to us. We're active on all kinds of social media. You can find us. And there's an email address listed on there. Can't promise you that it's checked super often, but it is checked. And, yeah, we're all going to make it. That's all I'm going to say. Anybody, does uh, anybody else have any closing statements there? Yeah, Like us on Yelp? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a, no, wrong. wrong yeah. Someone's going to start a bio breakdown Yelp page now. We're serving Thanks. fish. Thanks, Randall. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank uh, you, Susan, for uh, coming on. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me.